Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and for amusement, I toss children into pits with hungry dogs to fight for meat. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresden, and I peed my kilt the first time I had to defend my dissertation. <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of auction theory and incentive compatibility. Today, we'll be talking about Highlander. Highlander, Dan. Want to say it? Do you want to say it? Highlander. I don't know why I say Highlander. Yes, Highlander. And the thing. Oh, there can be only one. There you go. That we talk about on this episode. (laughs) And it is Highlander. Yes. I just feel like. Can you. You have, you, that reference. <laughs> you have to make that reference as soon as possible, like when someone That's brings true, up yeah. Highlander. So yes. like it's it's sort of like how you have to retweet the Tom Holland umbrella dance if you see it <laughs> on Twitter. Like you have to do that as quickly as possible or the universe yeah. gets mad. So you if you hear Highlander, you have to say there can be only there one. There can be only one. Yes, I, I understand. Now. Yes, or the, the balanced universe can get, gets off. You are listening to Space the Nation. We are a podcast, and we have patrons. That's how we make money, or how we pay our expenses. There's a little bit of a difference. If you are not already a patron, um, please consider becoming one. You can go to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash space the nation. Dan, what is something else people could do if they're a fan of the show and wanted to support us? You know what? If you want to support us but have limited means, we understand. Uh, You can also do things like rate and review the show. You can tell your friends and neighbors, maybe friends and neighbors with means who could then choose to become patrons. There you go. The point is, is that you could like, you know, just generate some good buzz about the podcast. We like buzz. People who listen to this show tend to like it. I guess that, Mm -hmm. wait, of course, they don't, I don't think we have a lot of hate listeners. Very few people hate (laughs) listening to this show. So like, and by the way, I think... To be honest, I don't think I would want a larger audience if it meant that people were hate listening. I don't think I would enjoy that as much. So, you know, if you wind up hating this episode, for the love of God, don't listen anymore. It's totally fine. And don't tell anybody about it. Yes, don't. Yeah. So if you hate this episode, keep it to your goddamn self is what we're saying. Yes. You can also, however, choose to reach us on social media. We are particularly on Twitter. I am at Dan Dresner, and she is... At Anna Marie Cox. And you know what? If you hated this episode, actually don't reach out on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just yeah. keep it to your goddamn self, like Dan said. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you want to be blocked. I mean, that's a, that's a surefire that's, way to that's, that's true. Blocked. That's good. Yes. Particularly this episode, because this is about Highlander. <laughs> Which Dan has feelings for. I do. I do. So why are we doing this for Hot Sci-Fi Summer? Listeners, I would put it this way. This film is to me as Event Horizon is to Anna, which is to say the combination of good, bad movie that we just love. That you you just love. It hits a sweet spot for you. Like for you, it's just like all of my buttons are pressed. Yes. Right? I mean, you know... Is there swordplay? Yes. Is there sweeping, like, 80s cheesy, you know, camera shots? Yeah. The Queen soundtrack is fucking awesome. It is. I mean, I, I have to admit, what if, I'd forgotten how much I love just literally the opening of this film where it's just, like, Sean Connery reading in a bathroom, like, a, like, quick overview. And then it cuts right into that Queen song, which is just amazing. Which um, was written for the movie and is yes. a little literal. You know, like all the all the Queen songs for this movie like are like pretty much everything be, in this film. There is, could be musical. It could be a musical. Like it could be sung yeah. in the movie, and it would yeah. make sense. Yeah. yeah. 
but I mean, nothing says hot sci-fi summer like a combination of engrossing world building and very cheesy action, which is pretty much this film. There is no subtext in this film. Do you ask there? This is where I will concede that I think Event Horizon weirdly is about some slightly deeper shit <laughs> than Highlander, and it might have to do with the fact that you started you watched Event Horizon in your twenties, whereas this film, because it came out in the eighties, like I saw in college and watched many, many times with my college friends, and so like maybe it hits a slightly more immature sweet spot for me. But nonetheless, the film rocks. <laughs> I this movie, I you know I read around about it doing the research for the story behind the story. It has some fans who see deep meaning in it, mm-hmm. who see subtext or at yep. least text, I guess. There's that, te- you know, the text like, is good. They see is the other way to put it. Yeah. Substrata in the text. Like there's some yeah, sure. like level that's not quite just what they're saying on the screen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will say this is movie is like event horizon in its relationship between us too, because it's flipped, yeah. right? Like you loved this right. as yeah. much as I loved Event Horizon. I liked this. I well, enjoyed much as I liked watching it, it and I appreciate it. And it's the kind of yeah. movie that I was like, I can see why people love this movie. Are into it. Right. Like with Buckaroo Panzai, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> How could anyone like this? It is boring. It is slow. It's offensive. Like all that. And now I'm like, no, this is like, I get it. Like, Mm-hmm. This is something I could see, especially young men <laughs> being real into. Although it has a surprisingly kind of, I think, like as no, it's not feminist, go, but it's no, pretty, but it's not like it's not sexist. Is the no, 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 it and really isn't. Yeah, we have a hot metallurgist as the second oh, lead. Oh yeah, exactly. Like I love that. I love, and also yeah. I love it's her thirst for knowledge that drives the plot. No, like she's a, she's also a real character. She's not. Yeah. The love interest. Like, she is a fully realized character. And this I, and movie which is, passes the Bechdel test. Yes. Wow. Think about that. Does it pass the Bechdel test? Yeah. Oh, well, there's. she doesn't talk to another no. woman. Because there's no other woman. She has woman. to talk to another woman. I'm not sure it does pass the <gasps> does Bechdel she talk, test. Does she talk to Rachel? Oh, she does. She does. She does. But is Although, it about him? It's about. It's entirely about him. But right. it's not about him in a romantic way. Yeah, so I, I think you could... I, I think this... You might be able to to give I, this like. This I think it's spirited past. It's the on the test, line. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. fail it. Let's say that. Yes. It doesn't fail okay. the Bechdel test. It almost yeah. passes it. So. Yes. That's good. Let's move on to our checkoffs. What's it? The thing that appears <laughs> early on that you know we know is going to appear later. Dan. As I said, there's not a lot of subtext in this film, but Chekhov's throat scar, which the Kurgan has when we first see him, and then we learn not how he has it. And then at the very end, he puts safety pins on it. Which I love that look. I absolutely <laughs> love that look. look. I yeah, actually like his look the entire the entire movie. He's, oh, yeah. He, no, no, he's, no. This, it's, it's one of the highlights of the movie. He, absolutely. He, he goes there. I will talk more about yeah. sort of what, what makes this a, a good, bad movie later. Yeah. For me, it's Chekhov's Sean Connery voiceover. Oh, which does both open and close the film. That's entirely fair. And in that very weird, I recorded this in a bathroom. He literally recorded <laughs> it in a bathroom way. Yes. <laughs> Speaking yep, of which, Dan. Let's get to the story behind the story. So, Anna, this is a 1980s cheeseball film. My Betazoid sense suggests that a music video director was involved. Am I correct in that surmise? Well, what gave it away, Dan? <laughs> Was it the lighting? The flashy lighting? <laughs> was it the drapery being blown into a window? 
Windblown drapery is a good 1980s. Was it the excessive, what I would say, wetness? <laughs> like fight, like when the sprinklers go off in the garage. Yeah. And there's yeah. just a fight in wetness. Like that's a real yeah. music video thing, you know? That is totally a music video thing. Yeah. So, All yes. Of those are true. So, yes, Dan, uh, it was directed by a music video director, Russell Mulcahy. And I'm going to quote Wikipedia here. Mulcahy's work is recognizable by the use of fast cuts, track shots, and the use of glowing lights, neon noir lighting, windblown drapery, and fans. <laughs> so those are his hallmarks. He also directed Resident Evil Extinction. He did. Yeah, which I assume you've seen. Oh, which, by the way, so this connects Event Horizon with this film because the other director of the Resident Evil franchise is Paul W.S. Anderson, who directed Event Horizon. There you go. He seems to now direct mostly teen TV series, which for me kind of tracks. That seems like a the logical career development for him. Yeah, uh, totally fair. And the thing about his work on this movie is, depending on what side of good, bad, bad, good, you know, <laughs> you fall on, he's either the reason the movie is great or he's the reason that it's not better. <laughs> Because, number one, mm-hmm. he's the guy that cast Christopher Lambert, which is a... We will discuss later. It's a bold move, Cotton. Yeah. Like, it's... <laughs> it is really a bold move. He saw a yeah. picture of him in a magazine. From his first... From uh, Graystroke, which is what he plays... Oh, well, but it's not English plays... language. Sorry, it's not an English language role. <laughs> well, no, it is. I mean, he plays Tarzan, but let, let's just say... He doesn't speak. That's a lot what I'm in saying. So yes, the movie's yes. in English, but you can't really <laughs> say that he's acting in, in English yeah. language. Uh, so he saw a picture of him and was like, "Let's get this guy." <laughs> What's the quote? Um, Flicking through a magazine, I saw a photo of Christopher Lambert. I said, "Who's this?" They had no idea. He couldn't speak English, but he had the perfect look, and he learned English very fast. That is debatable on yes it, whether he actually learned English <laughs> very fast based on his. You know, dialogue yeah. in this film yeah. yeah fans friends of the pod might want to note that kurt russell was the first choice for mcleod but he was convinced mm-hmm. by his wife goldie Hawn to do big trouble in little china instead now dan how would history be different like do you want to think about that like it's would, so, would trump uh, have been elected <laughs> that's you know that that i think is going to be like season four of for all mankind you know the, is when kurt russell does this movie and (laughs) let me put it this way there is no denying that on any level kurt russell is a better actor than christopher lambert that said i don't recall kurt russell doing any accents and the scottish thing works in this film and i'm not sure kurt russell with a scottish i don't recall christopher lambert doing a scottish accent either but it was not an american (laughs) accent is the important thing so yeah totally fair well, totally he's fair. been in America a lot for of 300 years. You could get away yeah. with an American accent. I don't know. But it, anyway, it kind of works, right? So this is like mm-hmm. the weird, like the choices that Mulcahy makes mm-hmm. make the movie really distinctive. Yes. But memorable. they also are places where you're like, oh, I could, you know, done something slightly different there. It might have been even better. One place that he had an influence was that the original script was a lot darker, and mostly because it also had a, a bit of backstory and focus on Kurgan. Mm-hmm. And he was given a slightly more complicated set of motivations. He wasn't just 
the bad guy. Evil. <laughs> Evil. And apparently both Clancy Brown and Gregory Wyden, who wrote the script, um, they would commiserate about this. You know what? I'm going to side with Mulcahy on this one. All right. Because, well, let me this way. First of all, Clancy Brown kills in this role. He does. Like, he he is. And he knows it, by the way. Yes, yes. I mean, he's fantastic in this film as an unapologetic bad guy. But I think it it simplifies things. I think a complicated backstory for Kurgan would have been much, like, maybe it would have been, like, more subtle. But I think it also would have been much less entertaining as a result. I would actually be interested in knowing a little bit more about that original darker version. That's fair. I wonder if it also made McLeod a little more complicated because he's very much like a good guy in this, right? Like he's got no real flaws (laughs) (laughs) at all. Except except excessive stoicism, perhaps. Yes, yes. yes. There's some fun quotes from both Gregory Wyden and Clancy Brown. Wyden says... Kurgan was the thing that was most different from my screenplay. He was much more tortured. Kurgan in Highlander as it is, is pretty much Freddy Krueger. He's just a cackling psychopath, which is a good, yes, that is He's correct. He's better than Freddy Krueger, I'm going to argue, because like it, it, Clancy Brown really like, again. Well, I guess maybe like, I'm getting more credit nice. to, to, I mean, I'm not taking anything away from Clancy Brown, but it is like the yeah. character is a cackling psychopath. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> And Clancy Brown wanted the character to be more layered, but he made the best of it. I wasn't yes, getting paid anything, he says. Uh, <laughs> Sean Connery was getting paid a lot, so you have to decide <laughs> if you're going to have fun or not. And the only thing I could have on the set was fun, so that's what I had. It's not one of my favorite experiences making a mo- that movie, though I did have fun. The circumstances of making it were very hard and not pleasant for a lot of people. <laughs> huh. Okay. <laughs> so... The apparently the, the unpleasantness was largely due to it being on a kind of tight budget and mm-hmm. very much they want it to, to be a commercial film, right? right. Uh, so they're really doing more with less, I would say. Which I would say they succeed by and large. I, I like, think so too. But apparently, like they had very underpaid extras that they didn't always feed. In Scotland, it was raining all the time. Uh, mm. Sean Connery filmed his entire role in one week, so everything had to be like organized around very quickly, very quickly around him. One side note is apparently the underpaid extras at one point burned Margaret Thatcher in effigy on set, which. No one I've read. Accomplished what exactly? I I guess the film crew was British. And so maybe they thought it would mean something. But apparently just, you know, a lot of shrugged shoulders. What Dan is doing right now? I'm literally shrugging my shoulders. I'm like, okay, you know, And, you know, so they had mostly students uh, in the battle scenes as they're not very well paid extras. and And also these battle scenes were not, let's say, choreographed. No, and actually, if you do, <laughs> let me put it this way, the the battle scenes, like when you first watch them work, there's no denying this, but like having watched this movie many times, I was watching in the background this time, it's pretty obvious the extras were not given much direction in terms of what to do, and like, you know, you see some extras like not really putting a ton of effort into the fighting. I guess would be the Apparently there was a real mix of effort, like some people mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, waved their arms, and then there were actual brawls that broke out as well. Fair enough. So that is why it wasn't a very fun set. I find it interesting that they managed to make it cheaply at all because the Scottish Highlands are such a big part of the movie and they clearly filmed there. 
and I guess yeah, that's, maybe that's even cheaper to film there than yeah, it, and it, it's fucking gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It, it almost looks unreal <laughs> because it's so gorgeous. The, the scenery, it really is. Like, I mean, one reason to watch the movie is it's just beautiful scenery. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful, rugged, unusual. You know, like yeah, they're, they they I think they filmed some like fantasy stuff there. That, that it's definitely like Lord of the Rings type scenery just more trivia gregory wyden wrote the screenplay as an assignment for a screenwriting class he got an a and his teacher said you should try to sell this and he sold it for two hundred thousand dollars in 1980 something which is that's actually a decent very very good (laughs) and in our ip is a flat circle section (laughs) as of this year a remake is in the works Uh wyden executive producing henry cavill as we mentioned earlier as mcleod david bautista or drax from guardians of the galaxy that's might be how you know him as kurgan directed by the director of john wick screenplay by carrie williamson who is currently a screenwriter for resident evil another connection netflix show yeah netflix show oh okay which is i'm underrated i'm just gonna say and she is also supposedly a writer for the Battlestar Galactica reboot that there is very little solid information on. I actually kind of hope, therefore, they make this because I assume that if they do, they do this remake, we will have a more complicated legacy, you know, backstory for Cricket so we can then compare and contrast. This could be a good movie. Like, I mean, it yeah. has like the ingredients to be not a good, bad movie, but like a legitimately just, no, an like, actually good movie, like yes. an actually good movie. It'll be interesting also to see it. one of the things that you I, a rabbit hole to go down if you want to are all the different debates and continuity issues of all the sequels and whatnot. Yeah, so I, I, I am choosing to. <laughs> I, I want to be very clear to yeah, our let's listeners. Not do that. I love the original Highlander. <laughs> I am not going to comment on the sequels and or the television shows that were, you know, created as a result of that, because to be honest, they all suck. And so the really just best not to comment on them, although apparently the sequel does have, interestingly enough, made in 1991 a climate change plot, which is interesting to me. But like still, it's a movie in which climate change causes the Earth's ozone to evaporate in months. That's that's how stupid it it's is. It's sort of so, a day after tomorrow kind of. Oh, it's worse than day after tomorrow. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, so right. yeah, it's not good. So there is lots of stuff to talk about if you want to talk about all the different sequels mm-hmm. and the various logical problems and holes and backfilling and retconning and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but we're not going to do that. I'm just going to no, state that God. it exists. And my point of bringing that up is that it will be interesting to see if they try to iron out a backstory and a future story, because this movie was very much supposed to be a one-off. Right. And it works as a one-off. It works as a one-off. Yeah. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see like what, what kind of IP they want to spin off off of that, if it's planned or not. But enough about the backstory, Dan, the plot. Let's get to the plot. Act one. This cocaine is awesome. So yeah, I want to cast a Frenchman who barely speaks English as a Scotsman. So it's fight night at Madison Square Garden in New York of 1985. While most folks are watching the professional wrestling, our protagonist, Russell Nash, seems restless and leaves for the parking lot. Once I just want to interrupt right here, okay? I just yeah. want to interrupt right here, which is this This is when I was like, oh, we're in for a ride. Like, this, <laughs> I did warn you that it was going to start with the professional wrestling. The nonsense of the way it starts, I was just like, <laughs> okay. 
I am in. Like, you have sold me. <laughs> you, I, I mean, like, let me put it this way. If you are not entertained by the first 15 minutes of this film, there is no point. Because it is entertaining. It is entertaining. It's not great. But, no, you know, but it's, it's good. And it's, I love it. It's just never explained. Just like, yeah. it's just. Why would he be at the professional wrestling? Why is yes. he dressed like a homeless person? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. An unhoused person. Our protagonist, Russell Nash, seems restless and leaves for the parking lot. Once there, he encounters some dude named Facile, and hey, it turns out both of them are packing swords, and not just because it's unsafe 1985 New York City. There's a few <laughs> unnecessary backflips and a lot of necessary swordplay that ends with Nash beheading Facile and some supernatural shit occurring right after. Nash hides his sword and tries to skedaddle, but the cops block him at the parking exit. Their interrogation about Facile's rare sword discovered at the crime scene goes nowhere, and he leaves the station. Meanwhile, back in 1536 in the Scottish Highlands, <laughs> a dude named Connor McLeod, who looks an awful lot like our Nash friend, is about to depart Glenfinnan with all the McLeods to fight the Frasers. The latter clan has an ally in the Kurgan, a badass dude with a badass outfit. I love that outfit that he was wearing in that first battle scene. It was it's, it's a hint that there's something maybe not completely <laughs> right. Like, I love that it's explained that he's immortal, basically, because that's not a yeah. something like they wear in Scotland. Is a no. suit made of skulls? <laughs> no, but I don't care. It's just like it's, oh no, like, it's great. It's great. He has it, a great look. The entire, like, the entire how are you going to know who this, what this guy stands for? All you needed to do was see that costume. It's like oh, so you're the villain then? Okay, yeah, good. It's, it's a suit of armor made of skulls. Yes. Anyway, he orders the Frasers to leave Connor alone. In the battle, the Kurgan impales Connor and is about to behead him, but is pushed away before he can finish the job. Everyone thinks McLeod's wound is mortal, but the next day Connor is healthy and shows up at the bar. The clan, rather than being happy, thinks it's the devil's work. They're going to burn him, but at the last second, his kinsman Angus banishes him instead. Oh, and hey, guess who drives into 1985 New York? That same Kurgan dude, looking much more like a punk rocker, but still packing a sword. Seems like a lot of the film's characters are very long-lived. Anna, one of the legitimately good things in this film, like one of the good, good things in this film, is the editing, particularly the cuts between 1985 New York and 16th century Scotland. Do you agree? Dan, it's as if you read my notes, <laughs> uh, which I literally, I have a note that says, this could have been a truly great movie. The cross-cutting structure works really well. And that's where I, I think I fall on the side of like, it's one of the pieces of evidence in in my head for there could have been like a good good movie here. Yes, you yes. know, this is a good bad movie. I'm not gonna, you know, like as I said, yes, I'm it's well a good bad movie. Flaws. It's it's completely like lovable. Right. But, but those edits are extreme. The, those, those cuts are extremely well done, and the and whole actually, structure it, really works. Yeah. Like it shouldn't yeah. kind of, but it does. Right. It's done very yeah. it, time travel. Time, you know, it, this isn't really time travel, but you know. Time jumps can be tricky. You never yeah. lose track of where you are. It's always very mm -hmm. grounded. I I, th I think, and they also make sense. Like it makes yeah. sense when they go from one to the other. I will say the screenplay and the plot is structured such that it makes sense why they then go back to Scotland and why they go to New York and so forth. Yeah, I will point out you are mm -hmm. a full fifteen minutes into the movie before Lambert <laughs> says something besides McLeod. <laughs> Which is shouted a lot at the yeah. beginning, which well, I did I mean, laugh at yeah, also. Yeah, yeah, like, they just keep shouting. McLeod! <laughs> McLeod! <laughs> I don't know. 
it's like a high school it's like a high school football team or something like i've never yeah. seen this kind of like spirit building elsewhere the lack of dialogue does suggest to me that maybe the confidence in uh, lambert's <laughs> english was not what okay he indicates in interviews you know like <laughs> Or, or maybe, maybe just, yeah. Or it, maybe the character is just supposed to be not, relatively Yeah, McLeod's a man a few words, I yes, think. Yes, that's true. I also want to say that the scene of him at the end made me laugh mm-hmm. out loud. <laughs> they play it really straight and also yeah. kind of ahistorical. They play it in this way that feels kind of contemporary in a weird way. Like it is a bar mm-hmm. and he walks in and there's just this complete disconnect of like, hey i'm alive and everyone's like well fuck you the devil's in you (laughs) and it's just i don't know what i find so funny about that like it maybe for one like he should have gotten a vibe earlier than when he walked into the inn (laughs) you would i think it's safe to say anna that when we see mcleod in those early scenes in the bar he is not the sharpest tool in the shed no and he and again his character is is consistent and well put together he's never supposed to be brilliant right no he's kind of a working stiff in a weird way right no by the 1980s you can accept that he is seasoned he is experienced and he is wealthy because of compound interest <laughs> right exactly <laughs> and the also he owns of, a lot of, of new york real estate right but i don't know like i don't know why i found that so funny but the idea <laughs> of walking into a bar and just being assuming everyone's going to be happy to see you because you're not dead and everyone kind of <laughs> like no like i wish you were dead now there's but, a part of me that wants to rewrite the Cheers theme for, for that scene. But yes, <laughs> right? Like, that's what made me laugh. It's like the anti-Cheers. It's like if, it's like if Norm walked in and people went, fuck you. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to go where everybody thinks you're possessed? Boom. Uh, and they really wish you dead. Don't and then it. the other thing I was going to say, there's a lot of, like, fun laughing for me. Like, not like this oh, is yeah. stupid, but, you know, this is kind of off. When he leaves the village and he's still in that yoke, right. <laughs> he's like stumbling up the hill. Like, why are you still in well, that? Well, you're not going to take it off of him. I mean, like Angus can't do that. If he does that, then they're I just going to burn him. Why not? Know? I mean, like that's sort of like, I don't no, know. No, I, I accepted that he was, you know, I don't know how he gets out of it. Yeah, that that's the part the, that he's just like stumbling up a hill, like yeah, in this yoke. Yeah. Or why show that? That's actually the other thing I was like. That would have been, I think you're, that's a fair point. Maybe it just shows his loneliness. And we have Chekhov's Angus. Dan. Ah. Uh, that sounds dirtier than I meant it, huh? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would say that, that costs you extra on Thursday. Yeah. Um, but he, I mean, I thought for sure he'd show up in some way because oh. it's like this little mean, it's like a meaningful little scene. And actually, yeah. he does say, I'll nay forget you, Angus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, Angus, again, decent man, you know, it, yeah. in, in a, it would have been easy to go with the crowd. So props to Angus for that. And then they would have discovered he really can't die. <laughs> yeah. By the way, it is worth noting that, like, the, the woman who kept saying he had the devil in him and was, like, you know, was clearly McLeod's wannabe wife is played by Celia Imrie, who is now a, she, I think, is on Better Things. She plays the mother to Pamela Adlon, which was sort of shocking for me because, like, I hadn't, I, I didn't realize she had, I mean, I knew she had a career in the 80s, but, like, I, you know, just didn't recognize. All right, let's get to act two. This cocaine is awesome. Casting Sean Connery as a Spaniard slash Egyptian is a great idea. So Nash returns to Madison Square Garden to retrieve his sword and spies forensic expert Brenda Wyatt extracting slivers of his sword at the crime scene. 
He follows her to a bar where they banter and he orders Glenn Morangi on the rocks, which, by the way, what the fuck? Because, like, no true Scotsman, I think, would do that. I, I, I know this, you know, I, I don't know if you need to weigh in here. You on could it, see like, a little, like, a little branch water, as they say. Yeah. Like, if you wanted to, like, just, you know, make it a little less astringent. Right. Fair enough. Uh, but ice, no. You wouldn't want it to be cold. Brenda then follows him out of the bar, sees the Kurgan attack him, and wants to know what is going on. Nash is uncommunicative and refuses to speak. <laughs> All right, smash cut back also to kind of 16th century. Yes. Smash cut back to 16th century Scotland. MacLeod has married a nice bonnie lass named Heather and seems to be building his own castle. Out of nowhere appears Juan Sanchez Villalobos Vermirez, chief metallurgist to Charles V of Spain and royal deliverer of all the exposition. He explains that MacLeod, like him, is an immortal. They can only die by being beheaded. The Kurgan, also an immortal and one of the strongest. The immortals will fight each other because there can be only one, Anna. When there are just a few left, it will be time for the gathering, which will happen in some faraway place. And then when... There is just one remaining. They will get the prize. We don't know what the prize is, but they will get it. Ramirez trains McLeod in sword fighting and um, other stuff, but breaks the bad news to him that he can't have children and should like totally dump Heather because watching her die will make him sad. On a night when McLeod is, I honestly don't know, Anna, like maybe <laughs> picking up takeout haggis or something. Like it was never explained why McLeod was not in the castle at this point. Kurgan assaults the castle. He beheads Ramirez and assaults Heather, who never tells McLeod about the rape. Anna, let's talk about Sean Connery's performance. Uh, he is entirely unconvincing as a Spaniard slash Egyptian. It also doesn't matter. It's a fun performance. And oddly, I actually think his one like be his best acting moment in the film is also the silliest and most superfluous plot point, which is that the immortals can feel the power of animals. Is that what that, that is? I, I, I don't know. It's a fact that never, again, it, it's like a failed checkoff thing. Cause like I was expecting that, you know, like, is that going to pop up later in the film? Nope. No, but nonetheless, nope. Sean Connery makes you think for a second that he really does feel that horse. It was actually yeah, good acting. So stag, I believe it stag, is. Stag, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That I was actually, as a first time watcher, I was like, this could go weird places. Like <laughs> what the hell is happening? But nope, nope. Doesn't appear again. You just see It doesn't go once. anywhere. Not, not only doesn't. does it not go somewhere weird, it just doesn't go anywhere. No. Although I didn't particularly think his acting in, in that part of the scene was good, but um, this is sort of akin to liking Sam Neill's reaction in, in Jurassic Park, which is when they run down the beach together, Yeah, the, they're joyous and it yes. comes across. Like yes. you, you feel like the joy and the exultation that one would have. If, As beach running scenes go, better than Rocky Three. That's the way. I yeah. Think. And it's a funny thing to like zero in on, but... Mm -hmm. It's true. Like, I actually, I did notice, like, in that yeah. scene, I was like, wow, I'm really buying, like, that these guys are just uh, reveling in, mm -hmm. like, life, yeah. you know? Yeah. And again, it's, Sean Connery just adds something to the film. Like, it, it's not a great film, but, like, he throws all of his energy into it. And I want to do the Vent Horizon analogy here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Would you say that Sean Connery is Highlander's Lawrence Fishburne? <sighs> or the Sam Neill... He's not the Sam Neill. I, I would say he is the Lawrence Fishburne. The, the only problem with that is Lawrence Fishburne's in the entire yeah, film. Yeah, that's true. Whereas Sean Connery, like, you know, is in the middle third, and that's pretty much it. But but I, I agree with you that he, he does the same thing, which is 
it's not that much that he grounds the film, but he makes the world of the film believable, which is which is an important thing. I was going to use the word grounds, yeah. but yeah, what you said too. It, <laughs> it he gives the movie a gravitational center. Yes, that is fair. And that is also what Lawrence Fishburne does, although for the whole movie. And it's just testament to Sean Connery being Sean fucking Connery, that right. he can do it in what however many few minutes he's on screen. Yeah. He's Sean Connery. Every minute he's on screen, even doing terrible accents and expositing, <laughs> you want to see what happens next. And, yep. and that actually made me think about, and we don't have to take a full sidebar here, but because I, he made, reminded me of Fishburne in Event Horizon, we have seen some truly great acting. Oh yeah, in this podcast. Yeah, and I was trying to think of who else is that big of a star. Like, who else have we watched that, like, every scene they're in, like, you want to know what happens next? Okay, so my the first thought I have is is Will Smith in Independence Day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a similar sort of thing. It's a charismatic performance, but also like, you can't stop watching. I was going to say Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum is good. Jeff Goldblum uh, works. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. We rhapsodized about Jude Law. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Let me put this way. I'm not sure that's true of Jude Law in every performance. Is it true of Jude Law in <laughs> Gattaca? Um, in Gattaca? <laughs> yeah. yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other person I thought of was Sigourney Weaver. Huh. It, Sigourney Weaver, it's a different energy with Sigourney Weaver. Like, I, I agree with you. Absolutely. Whatever she's doing, I was thinking about it because of we yeah. see her in both the Alien franchise and in Galaxy Quest, which are two completely, totally different different roles, and yeah. she's got it. She has it, you know, in both roles. You know what? I would also the other we haven't talked about him in in this. I don't think we've actually talked about anything he's appeared in yet. But like Patrick Stewart is like that also. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I agree. I agree. Yeah. Those are the people that that make some good bad movies too, right? Like yeah. that's why. Oh, yeah. yeah. Some movies just are carried by that kind of like one charismatic actor. Right. Uh, the last thing about this section is there's a doggy. <laughs> Doesn't appear anywhere else. Like it's just a short thing. But Heather exits the in progress castle. All right. And there is a doggy waiting for her and mm-hmm. she pets the dog. And that's the last we see of it. I assume it had a, a good life and lived a I long w- time and <laughs> was very helpful. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm wondering if there was like off camera, like you know, there was a, there was a cut scene where Ramirez explained to to McCloud, you, you can't have, have dogs, <laughs> you can't have pets, McCloud. You will want, you know, when I was my last pet was a dog in Japan. When he died, I was shattered. Well, you, he brings up a good point because yeah, it's I, you know, there was like a viral tweet recently about like, yes, I think I will, you know buy this creature who is most certainly going to die before I do and base my entire mental and emotional well-being on it. (laughs) Nope, still worth it. Oh, it's worth it. It's just like, it is, it's why it's worth it. It's why it's worth it for him to stay with Heather, but let's go ahead and get to that. All right, let's get to act three, The Gathering Begins. Brenda keeps visiting Nash's antique shop to get some answers about the sword fragment she's analyzing. Rachel, who is Nash's girl Friday, tries to stonewall her, but that doesn't work. As he finds himself attracted to Brenda, he flashes back to the end of his time with Heather. She did die of old age in his arms, leading to exactly the pain that Ramirez warned about. Sidebar here, the Queen song 
want to live forever during that section really worked. I mean, it, again, it was I know it was on the nose, but it was a good, good thing as far as I was concerned. Would you like a bit of trivia about it? I would. Yes. The songwriter in that case, Brian May. May, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I do know this. That apparently Queen were shown footage and they were into it so much that each of the members of the band wrote a song for the movie. And Brian May's uh, mother, I believe, was dying. Oh. And oh. or just died. But he was feeling grief. That's actually what, wow. what, what I remember reading is that he was okay. going through some grief himself. So this is the song is. Oh, that's affecting. Yeah. I found that. I'll just jump in. Yeah. I actually teared up during that scene. Oh. Like, I found it incredibly moving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the problem with Lambert in that role is not that he's a bad actor. No, he's not a bad actor. In he Because he sells that scene. They both yeah. do. Like, I yeah. completely believe that that guy stayed with her and that mm-hmm. they loved each other like they loved each other in the very beginning the entire time. I believed that. And that's what mm-hmm. makes it that what makes it sad and beautiful. I didn't expect yeah. to get teary during this movie, but I did. Was your not, problem, not like, so, so if your problem is not that he's a bad actor, it's that he, his just his command of the English language was not. It's that, um, and I think I don't. I think his energy is. I want him to have a little more than he does. Like he's he's stoic mm-hmm. to the point of wooden at times. Yeah, that's fair. No, that's totally fair. And he's in many ways too passive during the New York. And I think that the reason why the language is a problem is that it doesn't give him a lot to work with. Yeah. Right. He has so few few lines of dialogue when he is given something to work with, like in that scene with Heather, Mm -hmm. which isn't dialogue to work with, but just like a really meaty story in that scene. He does well. No, and like even like there's a scene which we'll get to, or I'd we'll talk about it, but like when he's over at Brenda's for for dinner and he opens up the bottle of wine and he talks about 1783 is a good year. That was a good. It was a good acting moment for him. Yeah, when um, he's when he's was, given something, like yeah. you see it, it but it, I just feel like he's not given a lot, you know. Yeah. And and maybe the answer also is that he's not the kind of actor that can do more than what he's given. Whereas yeah. there are plenty of actors who can do that. Like Sean By the way, I, while we're on this point, I do want to like just do a shout out to the actress's name is B.D. Edney, who plays Heather. And it's not a terribly like it, that is an underwritten role. And she does a fantastic job. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, like she gives the impression of someone who is full of life. Like um, that is its own little movie. Like yeah. their story could be yeah. a student film, you know, yeah. like just the mm-hmm. story of an immortal person who truly loves yeah. a mortal. And yeah. It's, 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 it's funny it's, you mention that because good. there are a lot of tiny little like small student films buried in this film. I don't <laughs> talk, let, me, let me get let me All talk right. about the rest Continue. of this plot. Uh, yeah, the gathering is definitely happening as Nash meets up with Castigier, a fellow immortal and friend, and they reminisce about the good times. Soon afterwards, Kurgan duels with Castigier and beheads him. An ex-marine vigilante witnesses all of this, exonerating <laughs> Nash to the cops. Kurgan then confronts Nash at church as he is honoring Heather's memory, telling him that it's just the two of them left. And oh, by the way, he was the one who raped Heather back in the day. They would fight then and there, but the one rule for immortals is no fighting on holy ground, so they break apart. Brenda confronts Nash again, who this time confesses that he is McLeod and proves his status as an immortal. This leads to some sexy times between Brenda and Nash. Okay, so a couple of things about this. 
first of all, when I mean small student films, like that whole sequence with the ex-Marine vigilante, like <laughs> which it is comes wild. Of, it's just yeah, like... it, it's just like a ten-minute thing where he's in the film and then that's it. I, like I kind of wanted to know what his he was good enough that I wanted to know his backstory. There's another scene with the cops where like the the hot dog vendor is like reading the post, oh yeah 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 which yeah. is great it's it that's a fantastic dialogue scene where he's like what does incompetent mean and like like he's just taunting the cops and like again really well done we never see the cops after that scene i don't yeah think. there's a bernie gets character right yeah yeah and this is it, or a guardian are, angels character we are now old enough to remember what the youngs maybe who've only known a giuliani new york right <laughs> a, a giuliani in post giuliani new york like we both got the tail end of real New York oh, at yeah. the very least, right? Yeah. Which was dirty, corrupt, cops are terrible, and that's a national joke, right? Yeah. It is funny to see that in there and to see it played the way that it was, which is, and I want to talk about this more when we talk about good, bad movies, but like those two scenes are played for real. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like they're not no. just throw offs. They're given attention and time and it does make it sort of mysterious in the movie. Mm-hmm. But like and there is a really great shot where and again, props to Mulcahy because he knows he doesn't need to repeat the story. But you see the Marine telling the cop, but you're seeing it from outside because yeah. you don't need to hear it. But like it's shot. I mean, you can tell it's an affecting scene because you can tell the Marine is like, clearly rattled and the cop is clearly rattled at the end of it like because he doesn't know what to do but like it, it's a scene that yeah, I know what you're talking about yeah few seconds yeah yeah okay I also want to talk about the sex scene on him mm. we have talked multiple times uh, about the awkwardness that is 1980s sex scenes uh, including most recently with the Terminator I would posit that this one actually holds up pretty well as things go first of all it's not too long I think it's like maybe 30 seconds if that there is nudity which is appropriate but it's not gratuitous also, it looks like they're using positions real people would use. <laughs> you know, again, and it's pretty hot. So I'm just going to Yeah, so there. I'm told, Dan, it's been a while. I don't know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I guess so I, could, I could look at some videos to, 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 to do a fact check on that. I think you watched it more closely than I did. Okay, that's uh, fair. And I will admit, the first time I watched this was as a college sophomore, I think. So, yeah. Probably unsurprising that that's stuck in my memory. So, yeah. That's okay. You literally watched it more closely than I did. I I was like, (laughs) yeah, this is fine. You know, I just will say again, I love that Brenda is a professional metallurgist. Like, I just love saying metallurgist, you know, (laughs) for one thing. Uh, And also there is there is a scene of him. There's a scene of McLeod like he's like having a scotch i think and i think he might have his sword with him and he picks up a book that's like medieval metallurgy or something and then he turns it over it's her book right i just think it's it's just it's just like a cute scene i don't know and she's a female scientist whose curiosity drives the plot yes absolutely and like i she gives this one speech at one point about how like the she has her she, own sets of motivations that have right, nothing exactly. to do with McLeod, which, have nothing to which do is with why you could yeah. say this does pass the Bechdel test. Yes, that is fair. Because no, when I, she I, talks about McLeod, it's not in a romantic context. No, no, no. And I love there's that one moment where she says like finding the sword is like finding a Boeing 747 during yeah. the medieval. Like I was great. And there's also like, a again, just a quick character beat where McLeod is at her apartment. She's like all set up, hopefully to record it. And then she looks in the mirror and says, do you know what you're doing? That's. Yeah. There are not enough of those beats in most 80s movies. And so, again, props to this one for actually including Right. All right. Let's get to Act 4. There can be only one Act 4. 
The morning after sexy times, McLeod takes Brenda to the zoo and says that it can't work because he's immortal. Brenda seems totally okay with that, I would add. A successful sex-positive one-night stand is ruined by the Kurgan seeing Brenda and deciding to kidnap her as a way to draw McLeod out. After hearing the Kurgan's voicemail message, McLeod tells Rachel to declare Russell Nash dead, regardless of how the ensuing fight is about to go. Kurgan lashes Brenda to the roof sign at Silver Cup Studios in Queens. McLeod shows up and he and Kurgan have an intense sword fight that causes the Silver Cup sign to collapse and everyone to fall into the floor below where there are the drapes, I believe, or whatever. Yes. It looks like the Kurgan is going to defeat McLeod, but Brenda whacks him over the head with a pipe and distracts him just long enough for Connor to recover. There's more dueling, which ends with Connor beheading the Kurgan and winning the prize and all the windows shattering and, you know, other 1980s tropes occurring. And what is that prize? He can now read the thoughts of everyone in the world. He is convinced, and we will talk about this later, that this gift will help bring peace and goodwill among mankind. Oh, also, McLeod can now have children, so there's a future with Brenda. Connor celebrates by taking her to Scotland and having the two of them model for the J. Crew catalog, I guess? That last costume choice was very weird, Anna, where they're, like, sitting on the highlands. I mean, like, I think he's wearing, like, a v-neck sweaters it was just, i believe pastels are involved it was very strange to see the two of them yeah. anyway anna the special effects of this film were cheesy in the 1980s and have aged poorly since but that said i did think the fight at the silver cup like seeing the silver cup sign class was pretty cool i liked that battle there's mm-hmm. some tropiness happening yeah. but i actually the fluttering drapes looked cool I'm yeah. like, oh, that, that is There's why There's a reason why that's a like, trope. Like, that's you know, right. It works. That's right. Yeah, it can yeah. look very cool. Um, yeah. The cuts are really good. You can see him hanging on a wire at one point, <laughs> though. There is very yeah. clearly Christopher mm-hmm. Lambert on a wire. So mm-hmm. that's not great. But, yeah. you know, it's a good movie. I yeah. was satisfied at the end of this oh, movie. Okay. I wanted to maybe bring up our unified theory of good, bad movies. Oh, all right. Please do. I think... I have it codified. All right. I think I can lay out rules, which we might want to use later. Okay. Number one, huge earnest ambition. Like the movie is aiming high. Yes. Right. And aiming like, high unironically. Aiming high unironically. In other words, this, in order for there to be a good, bad film, the people involved have to believe they are making a good film. Yes, yes. Or trying to make or a good film. Or trying to make a good like, film. Like, they yeah. have in their heads the idea of a good film. Yeah. Fair you know? Enough. So, yes, definitely, yes, this okay. movie. Check. Attention to detail. So, I'm going to qualify I would name this. the scene. I would name the scene that you're talking about with the cop as yeah. actually an example of, yes, I think there is, like... It doesn't have to be attention to detail. There can be like flaws, but it's more I, like I, it's, a, it's a thought through world. Maybe yes. that's actually the way to put it. I think that's a better way. So the, yeah. the difference, we, I think, between a good, bad film and a good, good film is that in a good, good film, the attention to detail is consistent and uniform throughout the film. Right, right. That, we've a, talked about that, yeah, yeah. Right. In a good, bad film, I think what happens is, is that there are areas where actually there is genuine effort put in and it really pays off. So again, going back to Event Horizon, you know, the, the core, the set design yeah. in the core and in the computer core, really extremely well done. And again, here, the scenes with the cops and the scene with the Marine, yeah. Yeah. Extremely effectively well done. So, but it's not consistent, and right. that's where so, the good bad part comes. In. So, I'd say attention to world building, but only in specific areas. Yeah, yeah. or atten- like yeah, attention to detail or world building, but it actually can't be consistent. 
that would make it a good movie. <laughs> but it's good enough in it's good enough in places to make you notice that that like right. it, it still moves you. Yeah, fair enough. And then number three for mm-hmm. me that I just have three performances that take the movie seriously. And I would argue, I think even Sean Connery is. He is, oh, yeah. he's he's there like no, he is he not phoning it in no. he commits so all the actors in this film commit to it there's no you know so uh, check I, I, yeah yep yep do you yeah, have anything it's... else for our unified theory i guess it's not a theory it's more of a hypothesis i okay so i have i i'm not sure but i propose two other i would propose okay. two additional things first there's probably going to be a voiceover and it's no. the good bad thing, like you know, like the, it usually doesn't add anything to it, but very often there's a voiceover. Okay. But also the music. Interesting. Like, I would say like Event Horizon. Like I still remember watching the credits in Event Horizon, thinking, "All right, the music has my attention here." Like in the opening thing, and same with this film. So just the thoughts there. Although that could be like it, that could be like one of the details that, that attention is. Yeah, I, I think that that might be one of those things. And I'll just, I'm looking at the list. I'm like, John Carpenter so so is like the king of all of this. Oh, yeah, that's perfect. You're right. What we've said, except for maybe voiceovers, this mm-hmm. describes every single John Carpenter movie. Yes. <laughs> Some yes. of which are also good, good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's absolutely yeah. fair. Anyways. Well, that brings us to a question. Yes, Anna? Is there IR in this film? There's a voiceover. There is erratic attention to detail. There is committed performances. But is there IR? Anna, from the dawn of time, IR has come, theorizing through the centuries, struggling to reach the gathering when the last few major paradigms will battle to the last. (laughs) Which is to say that there is IR in this film and the paradigm that gets beheaded at the end is realism. So... This film's world building should be what we in the social science biz call an easy test for realism. Because among the immortals, it is a zero-sum game, all right? It is only possible to win this game when everyone else has lost. That is the definition of zero-sum. This should be fertile ground for realpolitik. And yet, the data provided by this film shows decidedly non-realist behavior persisting. Consider the following. First of all, Ramirez seeks out McLeod in Scotland, and trains him rather than beheads him, right? Doesn't eliminate a competitor. Rather, he decides, I've got to ally with this guy, so we make sure the Kurgan doesn't win. Totally fair. Then in 1985 New York, Castigar and McLeod are clearly friends. And even when it's down to just three of them, it's those two plus the Kurgan, they nonetheless decide to party rather than to try to fight each other. Okay, again, cooperation. And even the Kurgan, the most Hobbesian of the immortals, adheres to the very important norm of not fighting on holy ground. All right, he actually like lectures McLeod about, really, you're gonna do this in a church? What the hell are you thinking? Okay. That said, so like realism should work to explain this film, totally doesn't work. The Kurgan falls at the end. You know, it turns out that either liberals or constructivists win the day. <laughs> that said, realism might actually have the last laugh because what uh, another thing that brings this film from a good good to a good bad film without question is the utter stupidity of the prize they all fight for. Okay, this is exactly how McLeod describes it. It's like a whirlwind in my head. But if I concentrate, I know what people are thinking all over the world. Presidents, diplomats, scientists, I can help them understand each other. 
McLeod's utter naive conviction that this will lead to peace is so dumb that it's unbearable. Like, <laughs> watching it again, I was like, oh, you stupid, stupid man. You really think that that's... Like, the idea that this would be the prize, that this is what you've spent centuries fighting for, and this is the one thing you get out of it, is so picayune. Like, and so useless for actually it's generating also, peace. You're right. I mean, like, just on a practical level, yeah. too. Where would you... I mean... It what, seems like, like what a great is he gonna power, do? but where do you start? Yeah, exactly. Like, like, do you go to the White House and say, by the way, like, I've been a lot... Like, also, by the way, you can't prove anything. Like, how are yeah. you going to say I've lived for 500 years because apparently now you're mortal? So, like, that oh, wait, doesn't work. You know what? The thing to do here. I have oh, okay. a plan. Okay. You yeah, use this vast knowledge to make a shit ton of money. Okay, so you... Oh, you go the Elon Musk route. I yeah, like this. Yeah, that's yeah, what I'm saying. Exactly. Fair. Yes, that is where I was going. Yeah. Is, like, you yeah. just make a lot of money by playing the stock market or whatever... And then you have the world's attention. Maybe, but like that is at best an indirect and you way just, of doing you, this. You get a Twitter account. You make a lot of money. You get a Twitter <laughs> account. World peace. Again, one of the things that brings down this film is like the prize should have been something better. In the end, it's just the MacGuffin and it doesn't really matter. But like a better screenplay would have a better prize. That's all I'm saying. There's enough realism in me so that every time I see that scene, I just laugh. Well, that's good. It's yeah. good that you laugh. There's, the, <laughs> I, I love private jokes in movies. I love it when there's like a specific thing in a movie that like no one else or very few other people will find it hilarious. So. But that you find, yes, that's fair. Yes. Yeah. yeah, maybe for me it's that bar scene. It, <laughs> no, I think the bar scene so works for you in that way. That's that's. Hi, I'm alive. Who cares? <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> so on. Yes, Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this film? Dan, I have the power. <laughs> the quickening that empowers me. I feel everything. I know everything. I am everything. But this film does not have that much to say about capitalism. I'm just going to add that, like, I know Lambert tries to deliver on those lines. It just doesn't work for me. No, no, no. It's, I think yeah. I did a better job, honestly. Yeah, I think you did, too. Yeah. So... I did have a thought, which actually goes back to the prize being shitty. <laughs> <laughs> which, by the way, I still love, by the way, that they fight for the prize and have no idea what it is. This is actually my point. This, yeah. is, this is capitalism, basically. Oh. <laughs> well done. Well done, In Cox. capitalism, we are supposed <laughs> to focus on the prize, mm -hmm. foregoing meaningful relationships, right? Mm -hmm. And connection. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. In yeah. order to win something, we aren't even sure we want or is of any use. Oh, damn. Carrie Williamson, get in touch with Anna, because, like, she is adding layers to this. I'm doing it the rap thing where you point at yourself. <laughs> Listeners. Yes. As if I have it all going on. <laughs> Which I do. <laughs> what? Ching, ching. Oh, my God, it's pieces of an ancient sword that should Oh, sword slivers that should not exist. Yes. <laughs> it's pieces of, it's obviously foam stone falling off castle walls. Yes. It's the debris field. Where we talk about the stuff we didn't get a chance to talk about. There's always something. There is. Dan? There's not a lot, but a few things. First of all, again, I actually laughed at like literally the very first thing in this film because I forgot that Canon had produced it. Yeah. And nothing says 1980s film more than that Canon logo that, that starts. They, they made 
so many cheesy films in the 1980s, so that was funny. I said this during the plot recap, but I don't know if you're aware of this. The, the movie got... The original theatrical release didn't have this. They added about 10 minutes of footage when they added the DVD, and it's now, like, in any version that you see. And one of the things they added was Facile's backflips in that first fight in the Madison Square Garden garage, and that makes no fucking sense whatsoever. I got uh, confused. Yeah, it's like, who, I thought it was someone else. No one I, is I literally, you. Yeah. I literally thought it might be a third person, because I'm yes. like, wait, that's the old, the old man is just, like, flipping? Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> now, just dumb to start that fight. Yep. And it ruins the geometry of yes. the fight. It makes yeah. no sense, and it shouldn't. Like, there were other things they added, including, like, how McLeod found Rachel, which is World War II. Although that was another minor sticking point for me, which is, like, this is a World War II scene. It's clearly supposed to be somewhere in Western Europe. The Nazis are, like, everywhere. And this little girl speaks English in yeah. an English accent. That made no goddamn sense either. So, like, yeah. again. That said, good for Rachel. Okay, like, one of the things we don't, you know, speaking of capitalism... Rachel clearly, like, worships McLeod, has grown old as Nash has stayed, as McLeod has stayed the same age, clearly will stay by his side forever. But in the end, basically, he just says, you get everything I'm going off. Good for Rachel. Rachel's going to have a good second act in her life is what I'm saying. Yeah, like, I'm I really agree. happy about that. I was going to say, I love that loft. That yes. Oh, that is me, a great it loft. It made me nostalgic for movies about New York in the 80s where you see those kinds of lofts. I feel like you don't, they still exist, but you don't see that specific kind of like airiness. I did also kind of want to, like I haven't done it. And I know that it made me miss New York actually too. Because I know that, I think that's Green Street that he was on. Mm -hmm. But like, I was like, I miss that. Again, that kind of right around Giuliani, like... (laughs) When it it's was pre, safer. It's pre-Giuliani, pre-David Dinkins. I think this is Ed Koch level. Aaron. Yeah, but yeah, but my New York is sort of, you know, when I first went to New York was like early 90s. Oh, that's Dinkins. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and it was like safer. But not safe. And Soho was still like, you know, that's where artists really lived. Fair enough, <laughs> yes. All right. Just one last point, which is I don't think we stress this enough. Clancy Brown is incredibly good yeah. in this movie. yeah just charismatic like he he is as good as connery he's charismatic you like him in both the medieval scenes but also particularly in the new york scenes he's just great and yeah i know it's it's a cartoonish role he does the best job with that cartoonish role is what i'm saying it fits into this the idea that in order to be good bad you have to commit and yeah and he he committed and i don't think maybe we should add this to the list but uh, i i appreciated in the interview that i i read with him where he says I decided to have fun. Yeah. Like I could, I mean, I could sit around. He's basically like, I could sit around and like wish that my character were better. Yeah. He could have glowered. He could have done nothing or but glower. I could have, do or I could just, you know, bite into it. And that's yeah. what he did. And that, he, and yeah. I think sometimes no feeling like the actor had fun mm-hmm. is part of like a good, bad movie. Yes. Not fun. Fun is like that. Not that they're laughing at it. They're still taking it seriously, but they're enjoying the process of making the movie. I guess the movie <laughs> itself, the set was miserable, but he enjoyed he was having fun with that role. And good for him. Yes. Yeah. All right, Anna, what do you got? Those flips were, I <laughs> was taken right out of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. taken right out. I did wonder where they keep the swords. Yeah, that's the it, one thing where like, I mean, that's why he's dressed like a homeless, like that in that god awful trench coat, presumably so he can hide the sword. But there are clearly yeah. so many times where it's like, 
you're not carrying a sword right now. What the? Don't give me that yeah. bullshit. You know, yeah, that's fair. There is this also scene with, I believe it's when there's one of the confrontations between McLeod and Brenda where a police helicopter comes by. It's between mm-hmm. McLeod and Kurgan. Okay, and, but, Kurgan. But Brenda is there. and Yeah, yeah Brenda's the, there. Yeah. yeah. And the, the police shine a light. And right. they just run away. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, that is the problem with policing via helicopter. Like- it, it helps that the, the guy in the chopper says, hey, wait. Like, he's got the, like, I, I, that was a great line read. He's like, you can't do this. What do you mean you're walking, running away? In the helicopter. Don't do that. Like, it's not fair. That's totally not cool, guys. <laughs> I love that. Yes. Hey, wait. I'm in the helicopter. Yeah. You're supposed to obey the guy in the helicopter. Exactly. I'll, I'll say again that the Scottish Highlands just are, are gorgeous. I've been to Scotland. Unfortunately, was, this is not, I joke about this sometimes, but it was literally, I was on a whiskey tour. Oh. Okay. And it was at the tail end of my drinking. So there's yeah. there are huge chunks of it. Like I said, I sometimes joke about this. I am actually serious. I do not remember. Mm. But I do remember how beautiful it was. Mm. And it's one of the places I want to go back to and really like I remember, I loved Edinburgh. Like it's just, it, I don't know, it's a cool place. I've never been actually. I've traveled a fair amount around Europe, but I've never been to Scotland. I'd love huh? to go. When we do our live tour, there like, we go. We'll, we'll go to there we go. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, as I said, and you've said, I kind of dug Kurgan's look. Like, oh yeah. He carries it off. The safety pins. Who knows? But it looks great. Sure. And then no, the safety pins work. Like they, you know it. He's going for the punk thing. And also when he shaves his head, it works. Yeah. And that, and to go back to the opening, <laughs> just starting that way with just absolute nonsense. Mm-hmm. It, the movie is like, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Okay. We're Basically, doing, the, the, the we're doing this. If you don't want that one <laughs> tracking shot across the entire Madison Square Garden, watching the wrestling and then, you know, Going up to Christopher Lambert's face. And then smash cutting to <laughs> 1500 Scotland. Yep. yep. For no reason that has been explained yet. Yep. Like, sure. I'm there. You've got yep. me. I want to know more. <laughs> Continue. I am extremely glad you got to finally watch this film. Like, yeah. I am like, too. This, this is a film that, that is worth watching. Once you know, Dan, I, I meant to ask this up top, which is, so we're almost at the end of Hot Sci-Fi Summer. Feels like it went by too quickly, to be honest, Donna. I agree. It'll be Butler Vember before you know it. There we go. Yeah. That is reassuring. Time flies. Uh, We only have a couple things left. I believe it is our Predator duology. I believe we are doing Predator and then Prey. Yes. Prey being the very much prequel, like so prequel, it's... Unconnected pre- in some ways. Yeah, it's, 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 it's also set in pre-colonial America. <laughs> also, Prey marks the end of Hot Sci-Fi Summer since it was not made in the 1980s. It is a yeah. release that I believe is coming out this weekend. In fact, coming out this weekend. I am interested in it because it was made by indigenous filmmakers in part. And it is the f- second movie in American history to be released in indigenous language, which I... Can I, I thought it was something that isn't Comanche, but I read Comanche in the you article know what? I was we looking will, at. I'm sure we will find out about that in the story behind the story. I will be reading more about it, yes. 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 So looking forward to that. And then, uh, you know, and then school starts again. Yep. And we, and we get into a different rhythm. We'll we'll be we will be in a slightly different that. vibe, but, but yeah. still entertaining stuff. So until then, 
keep this channel open for more.